This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at storageunpacked.com. This is Chris Evans with a Storage Unpacked podcast. Today, I'm joined by Derek Dicker from Nereid. Let's hope I got that right, Derek. Absolutely. You nailed it. Excellent. So let's just uh, spend 30 seconds telling everybody what Nereid does and what you do, and then we can dive into a bit more detail about your product. Yeah, fantastic. So Nereid is a data storage appliance company. We're, uh, we're based out of... Uh, Austin, Texas. We're, we're headquartered out of Austin, Texas, but we have a fairly sizable organization in New Zealand, of all places. And I'm happy to tell you a little bit more about that. Okay. Uh, we've been in existence since uh, 2015, and uh, we're essentially ramping product now. Excellent. So um, we've obviously met uh, some time ago previously in a previous life. So you're not a newbie to the podcasting te- technology. Um, it's been a few years, though, and I think we did it at, at a flash memory summit face-to-face, but we're doing this one remotely today. But you're not a newbie. That's always good. <laughs> no, that's true. And I really I, I remember vividly our, uh, our conversation at FMS. I really, truly enjoyed it. I was looking forward to doing this session with you again. Great. Excellent. Right. So let's dive into it then. So would you class yourself as a startup company at this point in your evolution? And if so, you know, why? And if not, why not? And what, what makes you a startup and what is the product that you've actually developed? What I would classify us as is a company who has deployed its very first product, uh, Nereid's Ultra IO storage system. Uh, we introduced that product uh, into the market uh, early last year. Over the course of the balance of last year, we ended up announcing a number of partnerships and then released the product uh, with our general availability release right towards the very tail end, so at the end of October. In terms of, you know, are we a startup or not, I leave that to others to decide. But um, what I would highlight is that we just closed our Series B fundraising, and and that uh, that finished uh, just towards the tail end of June. And we're using the funding that we've received for the purposes of ramping the sales of the Ultra.io product into the market. Excellent. So what makes Ultra IO different to other storage arrays? I mean, you look at this market, and I could pick off the top of my head probably 10 or 15 companies that make storage arrays of different types, you know, headed by the obvious big players in the market. So generally, companies don't come to market with another storage array. It's not, you know, that's not what you call the biggest growth area at the moment. So what exactly have you developed? And why do you feel that your particular platform gives you a step up compared to others? If it's all right with you, Chris, maybe I could take you and the listeners through a little bit of the history of the company Absolutely. in terms of how yeah, we landed that'd on Ultra. Really helpful. Yeah, brilliant. Fantastic. So, you know, if you if you wind the clock back to the founding of the company, the company was founded by two individuals out of New Zealand, of all places. And the reason why that's particularly relevant is one of the individuals came out of the Pacific Northwest with quite a bit of work on Xbox. Um, and, and out of that carried with him a, a very unique understanding of the power and potential behind GPUs. And so the second say, founder sorry, was... Sorry to interrupt, but when we say Xbox, you mean the consumer games console? I do, the consumer gaming right. console Xbox, which, which leverages uh, advanced graphics technologies and created awareness of what potentially could become the power behind graphics processing units in other applications. Okay. And so uh, the two individuals got together and, and they, they realized that GPUs had potential far beyond consumer gaming and were interested to explore the potential of open source software and GPUs to deliver new technologies. 
and they happen to get involved on behalf of New Zealand in a project called the Square Kilometer Array. Are you at all familiar with it? I have heard of that. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that um, where you they basically have a number of different locations that um, are receiving radio signals, but they use effectively maths to join them together so they appear to be one enormous single um i guess receiving unit yeah it's actually the the you got it it's the world's largest radio telescope and the way that they actually pull signals from uh from the heavens i'll call it uh, is by building two square kilometer footprints of antenna and those antenna are essentially listening What's unique about that from a storage perspective is that they pull a fairly tremendous amount of data into a system and they run uh, over the course of time. They just constantly are feeding data. So it's a very large ingest challenge. Uh, This team stared at that challenge, both from the perspective of how much data needs to be ingested, but then how to keep it very resilient. And the resiliency maps directly to the fact that you're gathering so much information, like a lot of high performance compute challenges, and the, the signal within the noise could be a very tiny piece, and you just simply can't afford to lose any of the data. So it needs to be highly resilient, it needs to be highly performant, but then it also needed to be efficient. It needed to be cost efficient because of, because of just the overall size and scale of the technology. And then lastly, it needed to be easy to maintain because the two locations that have been selected for the square kilometer array are in rather remote locations. So that uh, makeup of requirements is what fed what the team stared at and said, you know what? There's a different way beyond how on-prem storage systems operate that must be possible in order to address those requirements uniquely. They looked at RAID as a core fundamental data protection technology and concluded it just it would not meet the requirements that they had seen presented to them. And what they chose to do then was take out a blank sheet of paper and architect a system from the ground up for that set of requirements. And that's what ultimately became Ultra.io. Okay, interesting. So there's a number of different things in there. I think, first of all, you're highlighting the fact that potentially, architecturally, the platform is built to a specific set of requirements or was initially. And, you know, we can talk about how that expands out into other use cases in a moment. But to sort of look at that and think, okay, rather than create a general purpose system, to create a system that has some very distinct requirements, I guess, is the reason why you could come to the market with a brand new storage system. It's not about replacing, you know, everybody's uh, clarions and all those old stuff that we've had for, for decades. This is a much more advanced set of requirements around throughput performance, resiliency, and so on. And it sounds to me like they're not at the lower end of the scale in terms of what you require there. They're potentially at the higher end of the scale. So you're talking, I'm guessing, gigabytes a second's worth of throughput and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you caught it exactly correct. So, so what the team um, embarked upon was an investigation to figure out how could they deliver a dozen gigabytes per second or more within a given system, but to do it on a hard disk drive basis. In other words, having all of the primary data stored in HDDs underneath a set of controllers. And that's what ultimately they architected. And the way that they did it is that they decided instead of using classic RAID technology, they would actually combine erasure coding technology and GPUs. The innovation that they brought forward, Chris, was this notion of instead of using RAID technology, which has classically been deployed across a vast majority of on-prem storage systems, they chose to innovate around erasure coding, which was a technology that was broadly available and used in hyperscale deployments at the time. But nobody had thought and built a system that could do erasure coding at the block level. And one of the challenges was that it's computationally expensive to conduct erasure coding. But with GPUs coming on the scene with the familiarity of the founders around the potential for GPUs, they actually combined those things together, patented an architecture, and then built a system. 
And that system, what's unique about it is it's a dual uh, combined processor architecture that utilizes a CPU and a GPU, where the ingest path, the path for putting IOs into the box is through the GPU. We erase your code every block, and then we persist it. And then when we read, we actually read out of the CPU side. And what that affords us the ability to do for customers that they seem to really like is they can get symmetric performance out of the box to the extent they need it, but they can most certainly get very, very fast ingest on the order of 20 gigabytes a second of throughput into the box. Just to uh, tick a few boxes for anybody who's listening who may not be 100% clear on the issues of erasure coding. Potentially, as an example, we've seen erasure coding being used by object storage vendors. And they'll build, rather than say a RAID group, which is a form of, is a form of erasure coding, but a very simplified one, where we might have, say, a, five, a 4 plus 1 RAID group, where we have one drive that might act as the, the failure node here. In erasure coding, you could have any combination of drives that are data drives and drives that are resiliency drives. So you could be building something that is, I don't know, a, a 14 plus 7 or a, any sort of potential combinations. And I think vendors have done that for geolocate, not geolocation, um, geodistribution benefits. And as you said, the challenge with all of those platforms is with so many components there, that computation is very intense in order to do the calculation for the erasure code. And I guess the other side of it, not to steal your thunder there, is... Ultimately, if you change any of that data, you potentially have to be very aware of what needs to be changed across that erasure coding set in order to change that content. So if you haven't got it in the structure you want it, it becomes pretty complex to change data in place, which is why it worked very well on object, because you always just delete it and start it again. You've absolutely captured it. And, and the other advantage, Chris, that we were able to implement into the system that is different from RAID technology, where as you establish RAID pools and you have drive failures that occur in a RAID pool, if you lose a couple of the wrong drives within a RAID pool, you're very quickly rolling out somebody to go service that, that failure. Or alternatively, you provision your system already in anticipation of that, and you're, you're housing extra capacity that you don't need to. With our system, the, the, the beautiful nature of it is that the customer can select how much resiliency they want. Do they want a few drives? Do they want 5, 10, or 20 drives of data protection? That affords. Now, of course, that comes at, at, at a price. You give up some of your raw capacity that could have otherwise been used as usable capacity. You give up some of that. But what you get, what you gain back in return is the peace of mind of knowing that you have a, a larger amount of drives that can fail uh, without needing to roll out somebody to service them. So you can then start to, to plan your maintenance. And then lastly, the, the beautiful thing about the way our system has been architected is that as you lose those drives, you actually still maintain your ingest performance. So we've shown through testing with our partner system Fabricworks that a system provisioned to tolerate 20 drives of, of failure in a system will still run at 95% write ingest. So it's a, it's a nice situation where other solutions that are based on RAID technology, we hear horror stories about performance degradation that occurs because the resources of the system sink to go service those drive failures. And that's something that we're able to, to work around. Now that, obviously, uh, without you giving away too much proprietary knowledge of exactly how the system works, you did mention that all the data is coming in through the GPU and then it's going to be pushed down to disk from there. So I guess the GPU is there to take a lot of that workload uh, calculation and so on before you obviously have some sort of format on which you put it on disk. And at that point, I guess that's why you can survive drive failures within that architecture and still continue to write. But in terms of 
when somebody builds it, that sort of solution, does that mean you have to size both the GPUs and CPUs to match the throughput of what the customer is looking to do? Or, or you're currently, are you deploying on a standard sort of model? We're deploying on a standard model. So that's the other advantage of the solution is we, we actually build out of all off-the-shelf hardware. If you were to look at the system, you would essentially have two controllers that are in an active-passive configuration. And those controllers are essentially servers. And then uh, underneath them, if you will, in a you know, kind of north-south fashion, uh, a pair of enclosures, one or two enclosures, actually a single or a dual enclosure configuration. And what that affords is the ability to scale anywhere from, call it approximately a petabyte to a little north of three and a half petabytes in today's configurations and double that tomorrow. And it's interesting that, you know, from a modern perspective to go down the route of using hard drives, everybody's sort of focused that flash will be the future and flash will be the, the scaling point that we'll see greater scaling than we'll see on flash potentially, sorry, that we'll see on hard disks potentially. It's interesting that you're able to deliver that throughput on a hard drive because that's generally uh, quite a difficult thing. And I'm guessing from your perspective, the trade-off there is pure cost because currently 30 terabyte drive of SSD compared to a 30 terabyte hard drive is a massive, still a massive differentiation factor in terms of cost. Yeah, you, you've caught it quite well, Chris. Um, the The reality is that a big, big chunk of the world's information today is still stored on hard drives. And I personally believe will continue to be for a very long time. The cost delta between those two technologies is not going to achieve a crossover for quite some time. And the ability to construct a system that has throughput on the order of what we've described at 20 gigabytes per second that we can realize in systems today and do so continuously and consistently to do that with all HDD means that the cost basis is largely, well, it's, it's all HDD for where the data is stored. Uh, and that, that um, we believe, provides quite an advantage for us. A lot of the systems that we see when we go into deals end up being hybrid-based systems, a combination, hybrid being defined as a combination of solid state and rotating media or hard disk drives. I do think looking back, uh, Derek, when you look at the, the history of the way things have gone, and Flash has been very much targeted at the obvious workloads that need low latency, OLTP type applications and stuff. And as vendors have, have spread that technology in the data center, they've tended to spread it across those sort of applications. There are, there, there are some vendors that are doing scale out flash, obviously. Um, I'm not going to go into the detail of naming other people as part of this discussion. But ultimately, if you're re receiving and needing to store petabytes worth of capacity, you need to do it in a cost effective way. And in your example of the um, the square kilometer array, are is that there sort of analysis work going on at the same time within that location? So you know that read write requirement is that hypercritical in the sort of customers that you're seeing this being deployed? It leads to a very specific direct question, which is where are the end markets where a solution like this would add the most value? If I were to kind of slightly suggest an alternative way of asking the question, Chris and. For us, the four markets that we're focused on are in the HPC market, the media and entertainment market, backup and recovery, and active archive. And the, the characteristics that each of those end markets end up requiring, I guess maybe the best term, is high throughput, consistent throughput, reliable. They're typically dealing with fairly large files. And, and in some cases, like in media and entertainment, and even in HPC workloads, those files are getting bigger and bigger as the generations move forward, right? You have higher resolution, higher frame rates. In the HPC world, I've, I've talked to some customers, potential customers who, who have files that are on the size of a petabyte each in some of these simulations that are being run. Gotcha. So it, that, that blew me away. I actually wasn't aware of that. 
the the place where a system like Ultra.io plays very well is in uh, in system deployments that have those types of requirements. So high sequential throughput, large size scale, the ability to scale over time, um, and also just of course the resiliency side. And then of course you know lastly, people look at the total cost of ownership. What's it going to cost? And increasingly, what what we're seeing. Beyond that, especially at petabyte scales, people are asking the question of, well, okay, tell me about the sustainability side of this too, because we have to not only deal with the cost, but we also have to deal with the considerations for the environment. And that's an area where you know, we, we, we think we're fairly unique too. Uh, I hadn't touched on this earlier, but because of the architecture and the fact that we leverage erasure coding and we handle rebuilds very differently, we're in a situation where we can use very large HDDs and we don't suffer the same challenges with the linear relationship between the size of the drive and a RAID-based rebuild. Um, so so that, uh, that's an incremental benefit for us. Now, what that translates to that not many people track is the power consumption of those larger drives versus a system built out of a large number of the smaller drives can be quite wide. And in some cases, when we've, when we've crunched the math and reviewed it, uh, with, with individuals in the industry, what we're finding is a fairly substantial gain in carbon footprint, a reduction in, in carbon footprint. So a system that's utilizing small drives, when compared to a system that's using some of the drives on the leading edge capacity side, can see a reduction by as much as 66% in the carbon footprint of the system. So that's an area where we think we potentially add value to customers also. That one's an interesting uh, angle from another, uh, sorry, an interesting thing from another angle, to be honest. I absolutely see the sustainability side of it and in, in terms of being able to actually use higher and higher capacity drives because, let's face it, we're being told we'll see uh, 50 terabyte drives within sort of 18 months, I guess. It's 18 months, two years maybe. And as part of that, you want those drives to stay in use as long as possible because there's a lot of materials that you'll be recycling all the time and the longer we can keep a drive, I th I guess, from my perspective, in use and especially something that's 50 terabytes if it fails and you've got to rebuild all that data every single time. You really do want to, to write to that drive in such a way that makes sure that it its longevity is increased. And clearly, high degrees of random reads is not going to, not going to have that drive working to its most effective. So the architecture of how you write to those drives will be, I think, important for their, for their lifetime as well. So what's your, what's your sort of view on that side of it? Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. And you know, we, uh, we, we refer to the algorithms that we use as intelligent data placement. And we keep in mind how we deal with every single drive and write to every single drive in the array as part of our strategy. And that, that actually maps directly to some of the sustainability advantage that we think we bring to our customers. It makes you quite unique, though, doesn't it, in the market? Because most vendors are sort of um, shying away from hard drives. The, you know, there's, there's only a small number. But the interesting thing is, again, without you know naming names, those other vendors have chosen to build an architecture specifically to suit the requirements, A, of the media and B, of what their customers are trying to do. And they've sort of got around the issues of the hard drive by developing an architecture that actually works well with it. And that's your GPU strategy, really, to use another technology which can actually deliver that value to you. Yeah, I, you know, if I were to take just a giant step back and look at the storage industry over the last decade plus, what I would posit is that very little innovation comparatively speaking, has gone into HDD-based solutions and a fairly substantial amount has gone into the flash space. And as a result, the amount of, I'll call it, carrying innovation forward and, and value forward in some of the HDD-based solutions hasn't been at the same pace as flash. Now, I, I understand why that's the case because we found as a storage industry this great new media 
that would afford the ability to deliver performance in random workloads and, and, and especially in the spaces that you articulated earlier in this conversation, Chris, and OLTP databases and others. But there is a very big portion of the market that continues to grow over time that's going to have large scale requirements. And, and that's one where because there hasn't been a lot of innovation applied, we think um, we look at it as a great opportunity for us, almost a blue ocean, um, to use the blue ocean, red ocean analogy. And, and I think that's definitely the case because ultimately you've talked about some industries where the volume of data being generated continues to rise significantly. So yeah, you, you look at some of those industries like media and entertainment where a lot of the modern technology is being driven by, as you mentioned, higher density um, images, but also we're seeing things like, I, I was at the F um, Formula One this weekend in, in the UK, you know, you can now watch the view of the race from any car in the UK permanently. So you can just sit and watch one driver driving around and you know you look at all of that data that's coming off of the cars that they're going to have to store you look at all the cgi they create and um, by the way this is the the, the the movie that brad pitt is um, doing at the moment they actually filmed some of that at the track so you know that's going to have to go through cgi and be modified and, and the just the volume of information kept to build and create a film now and and those cascading copies that go out to different purposes it's it's enormous. It's not like it was even five years ago. I don't don't expect. And you've got a whole set of industries that you can you know align against that. That probably more interestingly, you know, even just the archive side of things, where customers are looking for for ways to find that gap between putting it on tape, where tape just becomes a sort of dead medium for them, and they, you know becomes really difficult to get it back off again, and flash, which becomes too expensive. So it seems to me this market is widening, shall we say? I, I share your view of that, and maybe I give a. You know, two two specific points on that. One of them is with a customer of ours, uh, Digital Image Studios. This is a creative marketing ad agency, and one of the challenges they saw with their existing architectures, kind of going back to how much innovation has been applied in in this space, they ended up having three different systems that they were running their storage infrastructure off of, and one of the challenges they had is they were moving above 4K resolution and doing their work was that they ended up having to create proxy copies and then shipping copies across the network into, into editing bays. And that was a place where the creatives were starting to run you know, software to, to make the modification on the files. They'd have to push it back across the network. That proxy copy would have to be translated again and shipped up into storage. And that whole process was costing them a couple of days on a project that was anywhere from seven to 10 days in duration. What we were able to do is help them take those three systems and replace them with a single Ultra I.O. We did some work with them on their network infrastructure, and essentially what they got to is where they could edit in line on the system itself. And we have a, we have a case study where we talk about this work, but their CEO, David Helley, was very complimentary of the performance advantage that it gave them and the operational savings that came along with it. So you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I only imagine as those resolutions continue to grow, you're going to see that bottleneck become more severe in, in a large number of of creative marketing companies that do this type of work. The second thing I would highlight is, you know, there is this emergence of a whole category of applications called Active Archive, which is exactly what you just described. And we're actually members of the Active Archive Alliance. It's a wonderful group of, of like-minded uh, companies in the ecosystem that see the emergence of a use case where you have tape and large amounts of data being stored on tape but there needs to be something sitting above tape that's performant that can take receipt of files out of tape. And it's not to replace it. The, the tape content stays the same. You're just making a copy of it 
then you're running analytics against that work. And that requires something that's performant for large scale stuff like what you described, something that's fairly sizable in terms of what, what, it, uh, what it can store. And then also resilient, right? You, you want that data to be there and run analytics on it. And then when you're done, you can let that data go because you still have your core copy below. But that, that whole segment we see growing rapidly, CAGR in the you know, 20%-ish range uh, over time. So very fast growing space to your point. We, we share your opinion on that. So I, I think that last one, I'd, I'd add a little bit more to that. And here's my uh, sort of the aspect of that, that particular uh, topic. I really don't think you should be storing data that you don't think you've got value for. Okay, this whole idea of let's keep data forever, because one day in, in the future, in 50 years time, we might find a use for it. The, the problem with that approach is inevitably, in a very short space of time, people forget what they've got. So my wife will remind me how many things I've gone out and bought and she'll go, but you've already got one of those or you've done that before. Or, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got one of those. I shouldn't don't need another one. And it's very easy, very quickly to forget that you actually have got what you've got. And unless you've got an incredibly strong asset management and data management uh, set of processes within your business, it's very easy to get this pile of junk that you really don't know what you've got and you don't know what the value of it is. And applying that in, in back into your business somehow is very difficult. So I think, A, you've got to be very aware of what you've got and you've got to be, keep track of it. But B, you've got to be deleting stuff when you don't need it. And as part of that, if you end up putting everything on tape without a way to reorganize or, or to process it periodically, as well as the, the active requirement, you end up with this just legacy of stuff you don't know what it is. And then you fall into the regulation traps of we better keep because we don't know whether we should be keeping it or not. And then, you know, you suddenly you've got another Iron Mountain business where there's billions of tapes just sitting there that nobody knows how to deal with. So I think anything that helps us actively manage an archive, both from a use per perspective, but both from a from that and a data management perspective, to me is really useful, and that's the, that's the other one I would say is, from my perspective, that you know the benefit of what you look like you can offer. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, you know, the other, the last thing you triggered a thought that um, is worth mentioning, in the media and entertainment space, you know, media asset management is is quite an interesting challenge, and what we've done is we've we've partnered with companies in this domain to to go to work on delivering solutions. So it's not just that we deliver a a storage system with these you know attributes of performance and resilience and efficiency but then by finding unique partners that offer unique value in different spaces we're able to combine and build a complete solution you know ultimately customers you know buy solutions as opposed to point products and what we found with digital blue and creative space we, we work together collaboratively at uh, at a joint customer in the production space at trinity broadcasting networks to go deliver exactly that a solution that helps Trinity manage all of that asset infrastructure. And that was a case where we were able to demonstrate the performance of the system well in excess of, of what their requirements were, which is great. And we were able to do it with a partner who could help round out the other part of the solution on the media asset management side, just like you had described earlier. Excellent. So let's just sort of wrap up with a, quick, a discussion about what, it, what the solution looks like today, what potential customers can expect. Are we talking about um, a box that's got however many petabytes? Is it a single box? Is, you know, exactly how does it look? You know, what have you sort of constructed to, at this point? What does it look like? Yeah, totally fair. So, so our controllers are, as I mentioned a little while ago, they're in an active-passive configuration. They're for you each. And then you can use either one or two enclosures that sit below it, each of which is for you. So it's a 12 to 16U solution. Um, and it ranges anywhere from a petabyte to north of three and a half petabytes of raw 
And then customers can come in and, and by the way, it's, you know, it's got an ethernet or an InfiniBand interface on it. Customers can configure the amount of resiliency they want in the box, and that will determine what their usable, uh, usable capacity is in the system. So that gives us an idea of, I think, what the what the hardware looks like. What, in, in terms of features, do you think customers are looking for? I mean, we'd expect that what that you know your data protection features are in there as standard. So it's it makes me wonder whether snapshots make sense in this environment. I guess they probably do at some point. Potentially replication and some way of getting data in and and out. You know, what sort of a roadmap do you think there are for for features that you would want to develop? Well, I think you're you're absolutely right in terms of the capabilities over time that a solution like ours would would go to add from a data services perspective. There's snapshots, there's replication and different types of replication. I think that the core for us is as we're uncovering these, we're baking these into the products. We have a roadmap of capabilities over time. But in the meanwhile, as we go to engage customers who have those unique requirements, we've actually found a number of ecosystem partners that provide them alongside us. And so we recently talked about uh, a company, Racktop, who's a very close partner of ours. They have a very unique offering in the cybersecurity space. And what we found was a a large-scale university that had a need for essentially file-based storage running on top of our block infrastructure with a ransomware offering. And they ended up offering some of those capabilities as part of the overall total solution that we offer to the customer. So where we sit in our evolution is we'll continue to bake those things natively into the box. And in the meantime, we'll work with the great partners that exist in the industry to offer a complete solution. How in terms of um, engagement are you working with customers? Are you going to go through MSPs, resellers? Are you going direct using mixing a mix of all of that, Derek? How are you getting to your customers to explain what your new technology is all about? No, it's a, it's a great question and a very important one. We are 100% through the channel. We're very blessed to have a network of channel partners. There's more than 30 of them. If you're interested to learn more about them, uh, you and your listeners can can visit our website, nerid.io. Um, and on there, what you'll see is a list of those channel partners. The way that we've selected them, and, and of course, this is always mutual between the two uh, two parties involved, but the way that we've tried to, to, to engage is to have companies that are both located in places around the continental U.S., this is where we're very first focused on is the U.S., uh, finding locations uh, geographically that cover the market, but then finding areas, uh, partners that specialize in the end markets where we're operating. So media and entertainment, high-performance compute focused, or those who might regularly touch backup and recovery or active archive markets. Those those are the types of partners that we've engaged. We're very blessed to have a number of them. Um, we also have a, a number of strategic technology partnerships that are articulated on that same part of our website in case the listeners are interested to hear more about those too. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because some of your um, use cases are quite um, industry specific. So you definitely want people who had really got industry knowledge with that to help sell to the customers to explain the value of the technology. And as you highlighted earlier, integrate other bits of software that might be needed in order to actually deliver a a solution rather than just a product, which makes a lot of sense. So uh, niriad.io, am I correct in the, the website name? That's correct. And people can go and look at that today and have a conversation with you, get in touch. Any other way that you'd like people to get in touch other than just going through the website? I'm more than happy to have them just email me directly. It's derek.dicker at nerid.io. Excellent. Well, Derek, it's been really interesting to have this discussion about 
well, I never thought I'd hear he- he- again. Another new storage platform. Um, and I'd, I'm being slightly facetious. I mean, you know, <laughs> in general, we have technology that comes along when we really need it. And it sounds like you've found a very interesting niche in terms of the idea of using GPUs to d- deliver that throughput, but within that combination of hard drives. So I'm really interested to look forward and find out what you're going to be doing in the future and how this product evolves. So... You know, for now, thanks for your time. But, you know, do come back and have another chat with us when there's a bit more of the story to tell. As is always the case, Chris, I truly enjoy talking to you. And I look forward to chatting again on uh, all the fun stuff that Neurate's doing moving forward. So thank you for the time. Excellent. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Storage Unpacked. For show notes and more, subscribe at storageunpacked.com. Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked Podcast. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.